Jeffries show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries show. I'm Donald Jeffries. Uh, very, I'm very excited to have uh, the guest we have today. Jackie Jura uh, founded and runs the wonderful Orwell Today website. I urge everyone out there to uh, go and, and check it out, orwelltoday.com. Uh, really great stuff there. All things Orwell and uh, it's never been more relevant than it is uh, today in uh, our crumbling uh, civilization as we speak. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So t- tell, uh, tell us how you got, how you got started. What, what gave you the idea? Have you always been like a, a fan of Orwell? I mean, what, what made you, I, I know you started this website quite a while ago. So when did you start it and what made you decide to devote, uh, I guess, most of your time to uh, this running website about George Orwell? Yes. Well, no, I didn't uh, know anything about Orwell other than he wrote 1984 and Animal Farm until around 1990 is when I discovered him again. But I'd read his book in high school. Like I was born in 1950, uh, 20 days after Orwell died, actually. He died in January 21st, 1948. And um, so uh, I read it in high school. And didn't like it because I'm not a science fiction reader, and I but I mean I read through it quickly and try you know not not totally, and I never thought about the book again. Um, and then, as political correctness started coming in around the 80s, is when I started noticing it. 1980s, um, I started noticing political correctness, but it didn't really occur to me that it was Orwellian until. I took a course in college um, where I noticed thought crime was very rampant. I was feeling that you had to say the right thing or you were in a lot of trouble. And I was finding myself getting into trouble for some of the things I was saying. They weren't politically correct. And it reminded me of thought crime flashback to when I read it in high school. So I decided to go and get the book from a used bookstore to look up thought crime, and I found it, and I found everything else, and it was just, it blew my mind. It, it actually scared me, and I became a, you know, I went running around telling people, look at, look at, look at happening, it's right out of 1984, and this was in the early 90s, and right. so people would say, well, you know, you're going to do about it. And finally, the web, the, the worldwide web was starting to come around uh, 2000 or so. And, or 1995, I think, I got my first computer. And um, or the first internet computer. And so I started, I decided to get the word out about Orwell. I will put a, I'll make a website dividing the book into the things I recognize as the main themes of 1984. So that's what I did. It took me maybe a year or two to uh, create the website themes. And the idea would be that I would compare the world we're living in today, which at that time was 2001, um, to the world Orwell described in 1984. 
And uh, then, I, of course, I proceeded to study Orwell. I read all of his other books over the courses of years. I traveled to England and to places where he was. I went, you know, everywhere that he was, where he was born, where he died, you know, where he wrote 1984, where he lived when he wrote uh, Animal Farm. And uh, I realized what a great uh, person he was. I also realized that he's not a, an author. He's more of a journalist. Mm-hmm. He's more of, a, a, of an essayist. And that's really what he was. Um, as a child, he'd always wanted to be an author. So he had a writing ability. At first he started with poems, but he wasn't very good with that. And also it turns out he's not that imaginative because all of his books are not novels. They're literally biographies of him. It's him talking through the characters of his books. And he doesn't even really disguise himself if you know about him. If you've read all the biographies, which I have, then you can see what he's doing. And then when you read the books that he talks about as well, you start to break the code and you realize he wrote Animal Farm. Well, we all know he wrote Animal Farm as an analogy of the Russian Revolution 1917, communist takeover. That's Animal Farm. And then you realize 1984 is about life in the Soviet Union after they came to power in 1917, through to when he wrote the book, 1948. And you you mentioned reading um, 1984 in high school. I think I did as well. And uh, so many American teenagers read that required reading it what you, and i've remarked on this many times i mean this this is i you know it's my favorite book of all time i've read it so many times and i think it's you know especially now it's one of the most important books ever written especially for our times now why do you think how did that happen that all of us you know all the baby boomers read it in high school and yet we allowed a veritable oceana to be constructed in our midst, I mean, how how did, did just no one get the idea? Is it the boiling frog analogy? How does no one understand what was happening until we reached the point we are today? When we are, it's you know, we're living in a. The only thing missing are the Big Brother posters. I know. Well, I guess the only reason they published it in the first place is Orwell was so famous already by then for Animal Farm, and he was a journalist, and he worked for BBC, and he was like a rock star almost in the literary world in England. And Mm -hmm. so when he wrote 1984, uh, I guess they figured they could make a lot of money selling it or something. Perhaps they didn't really understand it themselves, the people that published it. And he had the and sense of he, he had the sense of drama to die right before it was published, right? That's always good for sales. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And thank uh, heavens they did put it in all the schools because I don't know why they did, but we all read it, and we wouldn't have ever discovered Orwell if we hadn't read it in high school. Wow, there's uh, there, you've got questions already coming into you from the chat room. Uh, some of us feel that combing. Combining Orwell with Huxley describes our current reality or is a playbook for social engineers. What's your view on that? Oh, I agree. Race New World, Huxley. I've broken that down on the website. Uh, That is full of uh, symbolism. Uh, Yes, uh, Marxism, everything. Uh, 
sexual abuse of children. I, I call it the unbrave new world. You know? <laughs> well, what are, also, what are, what are your thoughts, uh, when someone wants to know, on Orwell being British intelligent asset Eric Blair? Out of this world. You just have to see what he wrote. Uh, I think some people think that because he had he wrote a crypto commie list after the war um, that when the government was setting up um, counterintelligence, wanting to find if there were spies infiltrating the uh, English government, and they, which of course there were. I mean, Bilby, all sorts of them. Um, and because Orwell was such an anti-communist and such a warning so much about Stalin and everything, he couldn't get Animal Farm published during the war. And then the only reason I guess he got uh, 1984 published is because he wrote it in code. But uh, the thing is, he wrote a crypto-commie list that included about 12 or 13 or 15 people that he divided into crypto commies, which maybe, you know, and then some definite ones. And he just said, these are the type of people that should not be in positions of media, should not be in positions of teaching people, you know, should not be in positions of having a voice to influence the uh, British people. We've had enough uh, propaganda. Absolutely. Uh, there's another question for you. Do you have information on E. Howard Hunt purchasing the film rights from Orwell's widow to Animal Farm and 1984 on behalf of the CIA? Have you heard that? Uh, Orwell's widow, Sonia, was a hero, actually. Um, Orwell met her when he was writing for a magazine called The Horizon, and uh, and he was married at the time, and his wife, tragically died um, on the operating table after the war and he had an adopted son to look after and um, he was lonely he was used to having someone to help him with his work uh, he needed somebody to talk to and he, he liked her she was smart um, they became friends um, he asked her, could she marry, would, would she like to marry him? And at first she said no. But then when he ended up in the hospital for the last time, um, she would go visit him. And he, he told her, I need someone to look after my, my estate when I die. I need someone smart, and, you know, I need, and, and she said she would, she would do that. And he, and he loved her, but he knew that she didn't love him the same way. I mean, he was a very sick man. He was a skeleton, lying in bed, he couldn't move. But she made him happy, and uh, that made her happy. And uh, he, they, had a, they got married in the hospital in, in London where he was dying. They had a hope that they could go to Switzerland where the air was thin. The, the doctors had even told him, there's a hope, you could go to Switzerland. And he had a fishing rod at the end of his bed because he didn't think he'd die because he said, I've got more books in me. I've got more books in me. And he didn't think you'd die if you had more books in you. But he had a hemorrhage <laughs> in the hospital one night, and he did die. January yeah, 21st, 1950. Way too soon. Uh, <clears throat> so did, did, uh, did the CIA through Hunt, did they buy the rights to, to those novels? Okay, so that to do with the question you asked about his wife. Yeah, well, Orwell that was... 
had a tax lawyer at his deathbed. He had a lawyer with the tax department and everything setting up the Orwell estate. And after he died, it turned out that that accountant was a crook, and he was taking all the money uh, that should have been Orwell's estate. And Sonia, the wife, who everything had been left to and trustee, was getting nothing. And this went on for quite a few years. It's a long story. The London Times published it in a Sunday paper. That's where I found out about the story. When I was in England, I read the Sunday Times on the weekend, and there was this story about how Orwell's wife had rescued his estate because she finally decided to take this this accountant to, to trial and sue him for all for Orwell's inheritance, and she had to. She got. She had gotten married after Orwell died, and that and that she was divorced. But from that, she got a huge estate. The guy she married was rich, and she used her. She sold her property to pay the legal fees, and and they won, and uh, all the money got back into Orwell's estate. Otherwise. Sonia would have, you know, but she died shortly after that from uh, cancer. And then Orwell's adopted son inherited everything as Orwell intended. So it had a happy ending. But as far as the movie or the CIA, no, Sonia was not stupid. And she would never had anything to do with the CIA. Now, so uh, Orwell, you said he had an adopted son. He didn't have any biological children. Was that that was his only son? And where is he still alive? Or what? I just wonder what he thought of of uh, the impact of uh, 1984. You know, decades later. Yes, uh, Orwell only had the adopted son. He married his first wife. Uh, he loved very much, and. Uh, they had a huge lot of experiences together. She went down to the Spanish Civil War with him. They ran a little shop in, in Wallington, Hertfordshire. Orwell had always wanted a child, but one of those things, they never, they never got a baby. And it really bothered Orwell. He wanted a baby really badly. So, uh, or Sonia, I mean, his wife, Eileen, her husband was a doctor. I mean, her brother and his, her brother's wife was a very famous doctor, Shaughnessy, Dr. Shaughnessy. He did. He was a heart surgeon and tuberculosis specialist. Imagine Orwell died of tuberculosis. <laughs> yes, yes. He, um, he uh, where are we going with this? They knew where you could get babies. So there was mm -hmm. a baby, I think it was up in Newcastle, came up for adoption because it was the war. All sorts of soldiers were coming in and out of England and people were getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so they, she found them a baby, and um, they adopted him. And that made Orwell very, very happy, and Eileen happy. But then tragically, not long after they had adopted him, they named him Richard Blair, um, she died on the operating table um, oh. off of Newcastle. And but so, but you, but you, but you said he had he had he did have a stepchild or son he had some son that survived and you said inherited everything right well this is Richard the son they adopted yes Richard also oh, how 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 old was he when he died Richard I think well Oral was forty six yeah I think Richard he might have been six six years old 
or maybe oh. three. I, I I can't really remember. Okay, because I thought I thought I heard you say that that, that they they had a he had a stepson or something that ended up inheriting everything after well, no, his wife his died. Son. His adopted son. His yeah. adopted son. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his okay. uh, he's his son. He they adopted him. Right. But he died yeah. when he was six. He couldn't have lived long enough to inherit everything, could he? It might not have been. Well, no, he's still alive. Richard's young. I mean, he's only what I don't know, seventy or something. No, no. I oh, oh, that's yeah, what I'm Richard saying. Yeah, that... forty-six or so. Okay, that's what I'm trying. So, so he, so he is still alive. So, what, what? Have you ever tried to contact him? You have the Orwell Today website. Just wondering what he thinks of his father's legacy. Uh, he has a website. He has a, a website called the Orwell Society. Uh, he's, I think he create Richard created his his Orwell project in around I think around ten years ago or so. He got a web created a website when he'd retired from what he was doing, and and now his mission in life too is to talk about George Orwell. And so on his Orwell Society is what it's called. You go there and he goes on, he, he does projects about Orwell. He, he travels to Spain and follows him around and tells people about his childhood, what he remembers and studies biographies and yeah. Does, does he recognize uh, the, the Orwellian uh, realities that have come to play, how, how close our society now mirrors 1984? He doesn't do that at all, really, on his website. He doesn't compare current events with Orwell, the book. Hmm. His main focus seems to be on when Orwell wrote this, where he wrote it, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, analyzing the book he has lots of biographers come on and and they write about that but uh they don't talk about current events at all interesting that's so that's neat. does he does he have did he have children does orwell have any grandchildren or anything yes uh his son richard is married and they i think they have children i'm not okay. sure how many I was just wondering how, you know, today I'm always fascinated by how in today's world with Orwell becoming an iconic figure and everybody talking about Big Brother and Memory Hole and all these terms that he made up, thought police, uh, how his relatives that are alive today would feel about it. And if any of them, I would think, you know, like people like you and I that are just moved to, you know, kind of see with the implications for this in, in real life, I just wondered if any of them have become like activists or if they're trying to fight against the, uh, the, you know, the, the tyranny that uh, is, is encroaching on us. Well, it's not a very big family. His sisters died. He had two sisters. They died before him. His mother died. His dad was old and he died. And all Orwell had was Richard and so then Richard has children. So that's about the extent of Orwell's family. So or Orwell's son, Richard, is doing Orwell work. He's just not doing it from a, um, uh, a scary place. Like he sort of just talks about Orwell went here, or he wrote this, or this is what he did. Or It's interesting, but it's not contemporary. 
he doesn't seem to be interested in in the horror of the book. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's that's a little disappointing. But so what? So you you started Orwell today. So once you start, because I mean, I, if you, if you go and look at it, and you, you everyone should go and check out OrwellToday.com. But you've got lots of his quotes. You also talk about lots of issues. I remember uh, you had something about the Beatles. I think you 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 talk about a lot of things. So tell tell people what what's on your website and what are how how you kind of added these things to it. And I know you have reader comments and so forth on there. Tell tell people a little bit about OrwellToday.com. Well, um, Orwell was a conspiracy theorist. He he warned us about the conspiracy of Big Brother world domination. I started becoming a conspiracy theorist myself over JFK. I guess it was around, I don't know, the 80s, maybe, when I was starting to do a lot of reading of all the books on JFK. And um, Mm -hmm. I remember in 1988, the 25th anniversary of his assassination, you know, the Big Life magazine came out. And, uh, yeah, by that time, I had realized that Lee Harper Oswald didn't kill him. I, I, I knew that. And so I spent a lot of my time figuring out, well, who did it? Why did they do it? I wanted the who, what, when, why of JFK because I loved JFK. I was 13 when he was assassinated. I remember every minute of it. I watched the whole trial. I did everything. And and then as, as, as time went by, for some reason, I started uh, reading everything about him. And so that was uh, what started me off with conspiracy theories. Because I discovered there's a bunch of other conspiracies besides killing JFK, and um, so then I st- then I started learning things as well through staged events, like when people other things would happen, like the Oklahoma City bombing got blown up or something, and then you learn about what what General Parton said is that it had to be bombs within, you know, it could have right. been a bomb. You know, you right. go through all yes. the physics, you learn all that. Mm-hmm. And then it came to the part where it was, and then I started noticing the thought crime and stuff through the 90s. And that's when I discovered things like David Icke. Uh, I was reading things like Media Bypass, a uh, sure. bunch of other newspapers and magazines, you know. Did you ever read The Spot? Did you ever read The Spotlight? Spotlight, all the time. I got the Spotlight Media Bypass. Yeah, I was reading all of that, and that opens up whole new, you know, like the TWA that was staged, Panama Canal giveaway. I mean, I was a walking time bomb of holy mackerel, what's going on? (laughs) And that's when I ended up in 1990. I already knew all that when I took the course at college. And I noticed all the political correctness. So that's when I just, so I already knew a lot of stuff. So I was able to recognize things were happening up at the college. People were being, there was no freedom up there. I mean, everybody was saying whatever they needed to say to get a mark or whatever. You couldn't get a discussion going. Whereas I remember in high school, when I went to school, you could. So that's like I say, I went and just read Orwell's book, 1984. And that was, oh, wow, <laughs> this is what's going on. Yeah, and well, so that's it's... then I decided, uh, well, people influenced me. They said, don't tell us about it. 
make a website so everybody could read it. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that would be a good idea. So how long did it take? Because you've got it's it's a it's a big website. You got a lot of stuff up there. I mean, are you're adding constantly? You're updating it constantly? Not as much as I used to, but I go into other areas as well on it. Like for instance, Bobby Fisher, the chess player. You know, I've got a special section on him. John Lennon, uh, the Beatles, um, mm-hmm. all sorts of other um, conspiracies. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I go up there. Are people that I, I especially uh, consider um, spiritual people that I'm close to, like Bobby Fischer and JFK and Orwell and John Lennon and, uh, uh, you know, the death of Princess Di, all sorts of, any conspiracy, you know. When the mm-hmm. Twin Towers went down, like I'm right there, you know. As soon as I saw it, I knew there's something wrong here. That's an implosion. Right, but absolutely. you would think to people, what you witnessed was an implosion. They'll say, no, it wasn't. You know. Well, I mean, there's so many parallels to our, our world and, 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 and Orwell's 1984. But yeah. one of the most obvious ones is how history is constantly being rewritten. Uh, where, you know, Winston worked at the Ministry of Truth and his job, you know, consisted of you know, creating unpersons and and throwing things uh, down the memory hole, constantly changing history. We've always been at war with Eurasia and all that. I mean, don't you see? I mean, to me, that that's what's happening all the time here. History is constantly being rewritten uh, to to you know fit into whatever the prejudices of today are. Exactly. And Orwell is Winston Smith in 1984, and the the diary Winston Smith is writing in 1984, hidden away in his little cubicle, hiding from the telescreen, is the book 1984. You know, everything Orwell describes in 1984, he's describing personal experiences because then it's less work to invent a character. And he's describing the present, what life was like in the present in the communist countries. And he said, and, and so that was, people were writing about what was happening in Russia, Lyons and other art, and Orwell was reading that. They knew what was going on there, but it was covered up. The general population of of England and America didn't know how horrible things were. Stalin was killing millions of people. But, you know, it was a thought police. This is where he got a lot of his ideas, everybody listening to everybody. So he was warning us. He said, what they're doing will be way worse in 1984 because um, they'll have technology. And Orwell says the systems that the, the, the evil systems that they've got set up in the Soviet Union, that they're setting up in China and uh, the totalitarian societies are bad, he says. But once they get technology in the future, he says, it will be horrible uh, there'll be a nightmare and that's why it scares the daylights out of people that read it but and that's what orwell wanted to warn us about he said right. big brother is a global government and it is going to practice total tyranny total surveillance the total control they'll control the weather the food you know right at us 
Well, we, we see you just even today, like we're, we're you know, when we have uh, baby sh- formula shortage and we have, we've had other shortage, toilet paper, all these things. That's just right out of 1984, you know, with the chocolate shortage and, and the things he, he talks <laughs> about those shortages constantly. And I, if he had lived, I can't help but think that he would be uh, relegated to appearing on programs like this because he would be so outside the circle. He, as you mentioned, he was kind of in literary good graces because he was a socialist and he just kind of wrote things that weren't too much outside the lines for a while. But once he, you know, Animal Farm kind of turned some heads, but, you know, if he had lived, he didn't live, you know, even to see 1984, uh, what happened with it. But I, I, do, you th- do you think he would have been, what would Orwell's reaction have been, do you think, to uh, the way 1984 was received and the fact it's still, you know, being talked so much about it? We're doing a show about it basically today, you know, all these years later. Well, I've got an icon up on my webpage that says, boy, did I call it or what? <laughs> Yeah, um, he uh, he knew he wasn't going to live, and writing 1984 practically did kill him. He he worked on it for many years, you know, piecing it together, and and then he had to type it himself in the end. And he knew he had to write it in code, you know, sort of like how we were noticing all this stuff. But he couldn't come right out and say it. He said, "Big Brother" and. Uh, the pyramidal new world order and uh, the brotherhood. Like, uh, here's what he says about the brotherhood. Let's find that. Where is that? I'm just going to my website now. Um, sure. Read read anything uh, you think appropriate from there. It's all great. Any, anything from Orwell is great. Big, yes, because he says that this is what my website is about. This isn't what Jackie Juris says. Who would listen to me? I'm, you know, I'm nobody. I'm telling you what George Orwell said. That's the point. That's the whole point of the website. This is what George Orwell said. And and for the Brotherhood, he says, members of the Brotherhood are prepared to give one's life, commit murder, commit acts of sabotage, betray one's country to foreign powers, cheat, forge, and blackmail, corrupt the minds of children, distribute habit-forming drugs, encourage prostitution, disseminate venereal diseases, do anything which is likely to cause demoralization of society. Okay? Mm-hmm. And here's what he says about scientific experimentation, which is something that I sort of wanted to focus on today with the global warming hoax, Okay. He says, in the vast laboratories of the Ministry of Peace, (laughs) the teams of experts are indefatigably at work searching for new and deadlier gases or for soluble poisons capable of being produced in such quantities as to destroy the vegetation of whole continents or for breeds of disease germs immunized against all possible antibodies. Others explore even remoter possibilities, such as focusing the sun's rays through lenses suspended thousands of kilometers away in space or producing artificial earthquakes and tidal waves by tapping the heat of the Earth center. And Orwell says, in Oceania at the present date, science in the old sense has almost ceased to exist. In Newspeak, there is no word for science. The empirical method of thought on which all the scientific achievements of the past were founded is opposed to the most fundamental principles of insight. And even technological progress only happens when its products can be in some way be used for the diminution of human liberty. And all the useful arts of the world is either standing still or going backwards. 
The fields are cultivated with horse plows while books are written by machinery. But in matters of vital importance, meaning in effect war and police espionage, the empirical approach is still encouraged or at least tolerated. And so far as scientific research still continues, its subject matter is how to discover against the, his will what another human being is thinking. And the other is how to kill several hundred million people in a few seconds without giving warning beforehand. So now we know that's what everything else is coming through. Now we know <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, but they're planning how to kill several hundred million people in a few seconds without giving warning. He said the scientist of today is either a mixture of psychologist and inquisitor, studying with real ordinary minuteness the meaning of facial expression, gestures, and tones of voice, and testing the truth-producing effects of drugs, shock therapy, hypnosis, and physical torture. Or he is a chemist, physicist, or biologist concerned only with such branches of his special subject as are relevant to the taking of life. And the vast, you know, so... That's scientific experiment, you know, it doesn't, uh, and when Orwell was being tortured in the ministry of, you know, in, in the ministry of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, what is it, love, in the ministry of love, O'Brien helped him, uh, that, you know, we can tell you that, you know, whatever is whatever, you you know, you got to believe it, you know, and, and Orwell says, no, no, there's truth and there's untruth. <laughs> you know, rocks from fall down to the ground with gravity, you know, the earth still there, whatever. Orwell's still clinging on. He's, that's where his famous line is, two plus two equals four. <laughs> yes. say it equals five. You know. Well, well, that's common core math, isn't it? And also or, 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 Orwell was, uh, it, sound, it sounds like when he was talking about inducing earthquakes, it sounds like he's talking about geoengineering there. You know, some of us feel well, that yeah. they've been... <laughs> been filming the weather. He was. It's just amazing how uh, astute how many things he caught. And just uh, you know, I, well, when you talked about political correctness, of course, the basis of, of political correctness and identity politics is this concept of hate speech, which is absurd. It says hate is a human emotion. The hate speech is incompatible with free speech. But hate speech then is also now it's called disinformation or misinformation. Uh, it, really, why don't you call it what it is? It, it, that's thought crime, right? You talked about thought crimes. That's what they're talking about, aren't they? Thought crimes. And that, and you hit it on the head. That is one of the most important parts of the book, thought crime. The Orwell even tells us that. Uh, that's the major, That's the biggest crime of all, thought crime. Okay, let's see. Thought police, okay. they can. Oh, he said they could plug in your wire whenever they want to, you know, Nothing is efficient except the thought police, you know, from birth to death, we're under the eye of the thought police. You can never be sure what, what, you know, that you're alone, you know, you can be inspected without warning, without knowing you're being inspected. Nothing was your own except a few cubic centimeters inside your skull. The person next table could be a spy. There was no no whether you were being watched at any given moment or in what system they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. The rubbish that was dinned out in them at school, the spies and the youth leagues, turned parents against kids against their parents. Parents were children were taught to spy on them. Everyone around you was surrounded day and night by informers. This was like coming out of you know Russia and stuff. But he's you add the component to it, 
And, you know, it was always at night they'd come and get you, public trials of traitors and thought criminals, you know. More commonly, people had incurred the displeasure of the party, simply disappeared and were never heard of again. They're called a ref's son person. He did not exist. He had never existed. You know, you couldn't get a firearm even if you wanted to kill yourself, you know. So, uh, you know. And so astute, and we we see that we isn't that what's happening now? I mean, now one good encouragement, uh, encouraging sign yeah. is uh, amazingly enough they did back off from this government disinformation board, which is you know is there anything more Orwellian than that? I don't know with Nina Janowitz, uh, Mary Poppins, whatever. But they backed off from that apparently. Or they're doing it now, but they're they're trying to push something through in uh, Congress for the domestic terrorist bill to define people's domestic terrorists. And again, this is all. This is all right out of Orwell. I mean, he didn't use that term, but that's exactly yeah. what he's talking about, criminalizing uh, beliefs. And that's what—that's the essence of thought crime. So the thought police are everywhere. We just don't call them that. Right. And there's that, and it's the most serious crime at all, thought crime, you know. If they find you guilty of thought crime, and, you know, which is what they did with Winston in, you know, in 1984. They were listening to him. And they knew he hated rats and was terrified of rats. So they used that against him when they were torturing him. Stick a rat in his face and get him to say whatever they wanted him to say. They'd been wanting him to say for a long time, two plus two is five. Yeah, and his plan was, I'll eat them inside and then I'll p- pint it all up inside me. He says, because Big Brother did not win. I don't love Big Brother, even if they made me say I love Big Brother. He don't. He says, I'll hold it in my heart. And the middle, when I feel that gun going in the back of my head, because he says they always shoot you in the hallway, they shoot you in the back of the head, he'll say, I love, I hate Big Brother. I'll go down hating Big Brother. So, um, yeah, Orwell hated uh, global tyranny. He hated the system that... Uh, it's being set up for us now. Not only is the system be it's set up. We're we're, we're set up. You know, they're bringing in the massive government on um, global warming hoax. Um, this is something that is our biggest problem right now. And on my website, I defend carbon dioxide, oil, gas, and oil. Okay. Carbon dioxide is, it's the air we breathe, you know. You have to have carbon dioxide to to live, you know. We breathe in oxygen, we expire carbon dioxide. This is more symbolism when they stick that mask on your face. That's covering up our whole being, you know. That's covering up our whole breathing apparatus. Uh, It's, you know, because one time I heard this interview on a radio show, um, on one radio network, um, I heard, listened to a radio interview by a man named Viv Forbes from Australia. And this is what he said. He says, there is no doubt that the driving motivation for the war on carbon and particularly the war on coal and oil and gas is driven by people who see this as their one great opportunity to introduce a worldwide tax on something which will fund all their dreams of a great beneficial world government which will control every pesky human on the face of the earth. 
These people are not interested in democracy. They're not interested in freedom. They're not interested in private property. They're interested in a suffocating world bureaucracy funded by attacks on the most fundamental thing that keeps the human race in its current state of prosperity and ease and affluence, which is energy. All, and if they think, can think of something to scare the people in order to allow them to grab this carbon tax, that's what they're going to do. And um, another article by uh, Greenpeace, the, the inventor of Greenpeace, the big environmental organization, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what's his name? Patrick Moore. The Greenpeace co-founder and former president of Greenpeace Canada, Patrick Moore, described the cynical and corrupt machinations fueling the narrative of anthropocentric global warming and climate change in an interview on Sirius, Breitbart News, said, fear has been used all through history to gain control of people's minds and wallets and all else, and the climate catastrophe is strictly a fear campaign. Well, fear and guilt. You're afraid you're killing your children because you're driving them in your SUV and emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and you feel guilty for doing that. There's no stronger mo motivation than those two. Scientists are co-opted and corrupted by politicians and bureaucracies investing in advancing the narrative of climate change in order to further centralize political power and control, exclaimed Monroe. More noted how green companies parasitize taxpayers via favorable re regulations and subsidies ostensibly justified by the aforementioned narrative's claimed threats, all while enjoying propagandistic protection across news media. So, in other words, the whole global warming um, carbon dioxide is a, is a pollutant, is a hoax. It's the biggest hoax ever perpetrated in mankind. And I live in Canada, and we have mm -hmm. it's more oil on, in our country than any other country, really, you know, in our oil sands. And we're not allowed to use that oil in Canada because it emits carbon dioxide, which of course it does. <laughs> Humans emit carbon dioxide. When we breathe oxygen and make energy and heat, it comes out as carbon dioxide, just like all fossil fuels do, and oil and is a fossil fuel, and coal. Now, we're not allowed to use our coal in Canada anymore. We're not allowed to use our oil, but we're sending it to communist China. Our pipeline is going to the coast, right from our oil sand. And we're not allowed to send it down to the States on the Keystone Pipeline. That was obliterated. You can't use it. But it goes to China and Russia. And Here's a little thing that I find really strange. When I was in England in 2003, um, doing Orwell, a homage to Orwell, all over the radio they were talking about how the uh, uh, Russian oligarch Abramovich or whatever, a billionaire Russian, was buying the Chelsea Soccer Club in England. And when I was driving around with friends, I was saying, isn't that a crazy communist or buying soccer club? I mean, how, how can you stand that? How can you put up with that? No, they didn't see a problem with it. And it's also a, a major thing that people don't seem to realize is Russia, the communists, own a lot of, Engl of England's newspapers. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you know that? 
Yeah, no, that's, but I, you know, when you talk about hoaxes, whether it's climate change or anything else, I, I read an astonishing thing. I posted on Facebook the other day that somebody uh, shared from Orwell where he was writing as a as a uh, journalist, which, you, as you noted, he was a journalist covering mm-hmm. these, the Spanish War. And yes. he, ta- he talked about, uh, he was very blatant about it. He, he talked about the lies that were being told because he said they're you know everybody's describing these bloody battles that are going on that and, and they're not going on at all i mean he was basically talking about hoaxes in terms of war and you see some of that now with a lot of people questioning you know how bono is giving a rock concert and all these world leaders are flowing right in the middle of a war zone i mean you know what, what's really going yeah. on there but orwell foretold that i mean he comes right out and says it and it's like wait wait a minute this is you know <laughs> he's talking about hoaxes well, he he just lucky. He luckily got out of Spain alive. He went down there in 19. When was it? 37, as a journalist. But he also became a soldier because at Eton he learned how to do soldier stuff. So they threw him into the army when he was there, and he fought on the side of uh, the socialists. Didn't uh, but he found out they were t- they weren't socialists. They were taken over by the communist government, and he got shot through the neck by a bullet. A bullet went right through his neck. Right through. I mean, it's a miracle he lived. And uh, then he discovered that, uh, you know, there was no, um, they were, the communists were suppressing the revolution where the people, you know, were getting their resources and everything. And when he came back to England because he had to leave because he was injured and, he, and they were throwing people into prison, the communists were, he came back and he wrote an essay called Spilling the Spanish beans, and he couldn't get it published. So mm-hmm. they weren't allowing the truth of the Spanish Civil War to be published, and that's when he realized he's going to have to start writing in code. I mean, mm-hmm. he complained a lot, but they wouldn't publish his stuff. Man, and so I that's can... when that, and he said in his book, why he, in his essay, why I write, he says it was after the Spanish Civil War. Here, I'll find the section here. Orwell wrote, why Orwell wrote 1984? Mm. He, he said, in a peaceful age, I might have written ornate and merely, you know, descriptive books, which he would have preferred, but he did live in an evil time, so he had to write this horrible stuff. Yeah, he, said, he said, the Spanish War and other events in 1936-37 turned the scale, and thereafter I knew where I stood. Every line of serious work that I have written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism, as I understand it. And democratic socialism is, is socialism is society owns the resources. Like United States, Canada, we have massive resources. Those do not belong to corporations policing our resources and, you know, skinning us alive and using us as slaves and sending our resources to enemies. You know, these resources are for us and that the people need to benefit from their resources. That's what the country is. There's a couple of people in the the chat room that want to know, do you see any solutions to what's going on? And and what do you think an average person can do maybe to, to try to fight this? Well, I think what they could do right now, like in, in the situation we're in right now, they can be a soldier themselves, and and they can say, no, I won't wear the mask. 
you know, I, I'm not an oxygen oxygen deprived mouth. I need oxygen up my nose and that explodes out my mouth. So no, I won't wear the mask. And no, I won't take your vaccination because I don't trust it. Okay, it's experimental. It's proven experimental, and I won't take it. I don't trust it. There's, it's got a bad reputation. So no, you know, you're not going to stick that in my arm. You're not going to stick that in my child's arm. I won't allow it. You know. And how to be part of a group? You can just do that individually yourself. And the thing is, if if everybody did that. They couldn't get away with what they're doing right now. Well, well, you know, so the parallel isn't. I mean, I, I quote this all the time when Orwell talks about the proles. We are the proles, and he talks about the yeah. proles could proles could crush the party at any time. They outnumber them. We outnumber the people that are tyrannizing us by the millions, if not the billions, around the world. But we can't get together, and it's just what Orwell talked about with the proles. They were fighting about the lottery, fighting about sports, the exact same thing that that we see. And today, where we're divided by race and, and, and things like that, and we just can't come together against a common enemy. Exactly. But, you know, if you say, what can I do? Well, you, you don't have to be part of a group to say no to these things. You just have to say, no, I won't do it, you know? Just like when the thing first started happening, the COVID thing, Lots of businesses and stuff, they said no, you know, they stood their ground. They said, no, I'm not closing my hamburger store. No, I'm not. And the whole government just came down heavy on them and hauled them away. That's when people needed to to defend those those businesses. That's when people needed to yeah. say no way. You know? Absolutely. And that's the problem is that we we we, we just kind of let it happen. The whole world was taken over in, in a couple of weeks and they didn't need a single troop. Yep. They didn't need a single cop without a shot being fired. And uh, we're still kind of living that down. They used fear on this. But uh, so I, I'm anxious to know, like, in your life, I don't know, do, do you have family? How are you? You, you? You've decided to dedicate, you know, I guess your life, it sounds like, to, to you know, Orwell's legacy. And you have this website and you're talking out, obviously, about these things. I know how my family is and how most other families are. How is your family looking at you? Or, or, or do you have support in your family or, or how does that work? Well, I'm, I have support, like, uh, but they think I'm a, I'm a thought criminal. Um, I'm a black sheep, you know, I'm the black sheep of the family, you know. Um, pretty well everybody else in my brothers and sisters and stuff, they're all, they play along to get along, you know. And I don't think really they believe me. Like, I, the problem is people think you're a conspiracy theorist, you know. Yes, I am a conspiracy theorist. JFK was a conspiracy theorist. He wrote that, remember he did that speech, the secret society speech? Right, right. And what was happening? Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's a conspiracy theorist. You know, because like I've been, when I, I, my main conspiracy used to be Lee Harvey Oswald didn't kill JFK. Mm Mm-hmm. No. And people would think that, you know, oh, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so I started being different, I guess, around around there. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as far as my children go, they they, they believe me. You know, they know. They know. That's good. Um, That's good. My husband, he, he's English, you know. So luckily mm-hmm. I married an Englishman. That's how I got to all those trips in England, you know. <laughs> Couldn't have done the Orwell work. 
Well, the, the, is he is he a, is he a, is he a, a fan of Orwell too? What did he think of your Orwell work? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, my my husband and my children are total uh, total immune. They've been immune with Orwell. You know, they they believe him. They love him. I mean, I'm almost like uh, I'm almost channeling. You know, mm-hmm. like I've tried to quit quit the website. I'll, I mean, I'll never take it down. Right. But I've tried sometimes to, oh, I get the, I don't care anymore. You know, I just don't care. I don't care anymore. I don't, you know. But for some reason, just like Orwell said with why he wrote, that he just can't stop. You know, there's something inside of him. It just forces him to, it's beyond his power, you know. Well, especially when you see the world 2001, when you started this, of course, after 9-11, I think that's when I call it what we're living in now, America 2.0. And I think it pretty much transformed into America 2.0 after 9-11. But so you you were kind of right there at the beginning. But there's just such a dramatic change, really, since, you know, the pandemic, because in the last two years, especially. But but even in the last five, you know, maybe with the election of Trump, you know, when the division of the country really came out and people got divided into camps and it's just madness. And there's so, so few people that aren't in one of those two camps. Uh, how, how do you, what do you think? Do you, I don't think there are any political solutions. I don't think they're counting the votes. I, I have no trust in the system at all. What, what are, are you following anyone politically? Were you a fan of Trump? So what, what do you think about, uh, is there any hope in the political? Orwell says, uh, okay, what, what does he talk about it? Politician, oh, the pyramidical new world order, okay? Um, at the apex of the new world order is Big Brother, you know, Big Brother, one world government. Below Big, Big Brother comes the inner party, the high. It's the brain of the organization, and its numbers are limited to 6 million or something less than 2% of the population, okay? That's the brain. Below the inner party comes the outer party, and these are politicians. The outer party, the middle, which many justly call the hand. So they're not uh, in control, all right? And then below the outer party comes the dumb masses, the low, who are habitually referred to as the prole, 85% of the population. And then there's the slaves of the equatorial land who pass constantly from conqueror to conqueror, you know? The, uh, okay, here's what we are, what, what the outer party is. The outer party was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizations, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and professional politicians. These people whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper grades of the working class have been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. Okay? So... They are owned by the upper, the inner party, which is people like uh, Kissinger and, um, oh, you know, who else? You know, all the big uh, movers and shakers, like Gates, he'd be up there at the inner party, you know, all, Absolutely, the, sure. all the billionaires, right? All these, these mm-hmm. things that take our resources, take our countries, have the CEOs and the shareholders Klaus Schwab, yeah, sure, sure. Schwab, you know, and a lot of them don't know their names, right? You know, Um, what does Orwell say? I'm trying to find that part where he talks about, uh, 
Well, Lennon, you know Lennon. Absolutely. I've written yeah, a lot about John, John Lennon. Lennon. Oh, oh okay. Said, Lennon, yeah. He said, um, it's not who casts the votes, it's who right. counts the votes that Absolutely. determines elections. Okay. Yeah, people, Americans ought to remember that. <laughs> All the politicians are, it doesn't matter which politician, it doesn't matter which country. They're nothing but a horse in the horse race, okay? Yeah. They're not, they rig the whole thing and they even say this person won. And, and But right. it's the only game the masses really believe in. Oh, you know, we got a democracy. I'm going to vote for this guy and I'm going to vote for that guy. But if you scratch the sur- surface of each of those guys, you're going to find that they're nothing but a, a puppet. Well, you it's know? like gold. It's like Goldstein. And I, I, I've called. I, I used. I was calling Trump Goldstein a lot. You know, because I said he's very much. You know, he reminds me. And people not only have a two-hour, a two-minute hate, but they have a you twenty-four-seven know, hate with them. And people were reacting to that just like they did Goldstein. And I think, uh, do you see some parallels there? Because Goldstein represented what is false opposition, and we have tons of false opposition out there. I don't know if there is any real opposition, really. It's all, it all seems like it's uh, bought and paid for. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, the thing, we, you know, we've got a guy named Trudeau. His father was prime minister in 1969. His father was a proven communist agent, you know. And his father was in bed with the communist Chinese. Canada has totally been taken over by... Chinese, you know, they own our oil sands, they own own our mining, you know, they're taking all of our stuff, you know. And his, and and his mother, his mother danced stuff. at uh, his mother danced a lot at Studio Fifty Four with Mick Jagger and all the other celebs. Well, there you go. <laughs> but she's yeah. so she yeah. saw what she was married to and got the heck out fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, I mean, and, you know, well, well, if you're in Canada, you you must have. Uh, because I we, we the entire world we were uh, so moved by the trucker strike and you saw what happened here and you you had the truckers convoy here which was a huge nothing burger which I knew it would be because people are terrified here because of the January sixth thing they don't want to all go to prison but uh, Canada that was that was some you know that was pretty powerful stuff but but it's it shows the state of the opposition you know Trudeau and the masters at Manitoulin they wouldn't back down and even though the people were behind it you had a lot of support up there for it i mean do you, do you think that, that the truckers convoy accomplished anything in canada well i think they did they woke a lot of people up i yes. can imagine yep. Trudeau, the prime minister, wouldn't even come to meet them. You know, they were there at Parliament Building. They wanted him to come out and answer their questions about give us some proof about what you've got for this whole carbon dioxide, this hoax with the vaccine and the COVID. Tell us what you based your uh, decisions on and what you've done to this country in the last two years. Bankrupt us all, destroy children, they can't go to school, every evil thing you've done. He wouldn't come out, of course. And then he called the Emergency Powers Act on them and had them thrown in jail, their bank accounts seized, which, of course, the banks cooperated with completely. I mean, it was blatant totalitarianism, like something right out of uh, Moscow or, or Beijing, you know. Total communism, but it's to be expected because his father set the ball in stage in 1969. He set this course on that extent. Did you know that a Russian company owns a big, huge steel mill here in Canada and is building the pipeline that is taking the oil to China? Abramovich, the same guy that bought the Chelsea Hockey Club, 
soccer mm-hmm. club owns a ski a spot our biggest steel company here in Canada. Well, is, is, the Russian owns our steel company and is building the pipeline that is going from Alberta to the coast to deliver oil and to China. Mm-hmm. And all our coal goes to China. Because they're yeah. allowed to burn fossil fuels, they're allowed to build pipelines, but we can't. Canada's but, transporting oil on trains, and the yeah, farmers no longer have enough space to move their wheat crop and everything else. Of course, this is all planned. And if you spill a train and leaves the tracks, that makes quite a big mess. There's nothing safer than a pipeline. It goes under the ground, it goes under the river, it goes under the ocean, and every other country is allowed to build pipelines and use their oil, but we're mm-hmm. not. That well, well it, it, as a Canadian, I, I like it hearing your perspective. It, I mean, I'm, this is a stupid question because I pretty much know the answer, but I'll just verify it. Uh, I'm assuming that you're... You, your, your media is just as controlled as ours are, and I'm sure there was – was there any positive coverage? At least like Tucker Carlson gave a little bit of positive coverage to the truckers. Was there anything in, – in, or was it just one state-controlled narrative? Is there is – there, you know, where do you, do you find – are there any independent news source in Canada? Like, you know, it's a stupid question, but I'm asking. Uh, there's some little groups, but, you know, you scratch the surface, you find they do have an agenda. You know, they're either saying, you know, that things bad, or they're blaming it on, you know, fascism, or you're a Nazi, or you're a white supremacist, or, you know, you say anything in defense, you just get dumped on. Uh, No, Canada, this is why I started the website. I live in Canada. I discovered 20 years ago what racks were run by, and that's why I had to put the website up. Because Orwell explains the whole thing. He says they own the Ministry of Truth. You can't say anything. They make all the newspapers. They make all the magazines. They make the highbrow stuff, the lowbrow stuff. They make all the documentaries, all the movies. That's what they do in Canada. Okay. Well, here, here, here's a here's a hypothetical. Uh... And before we go, because we're, we're just we're, we went over a little bit, but we'll, just a couple more minutes here. But hypothetical, George Orwell's alive today, and I think we can pretty much imagine what he would think. But what, first of all, what would he think of our world? Uh, what would he think of the kind of the dichotomy of everyone knowing and reading and appreciating his book, but then allowing it all to happen? Would, would he? Would, would, can you guess maybe what what Orwell would think about uh, 2022 instead of 1984? I think he'd be uh, very, 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 very uh, worried <laughs> that, that we're probably not going to get out of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I would think, well, yeah, I, I think so because I mean, it's just it's uh, you know the more the more I read him, like Orwell is one of uh, my other heroes, Huey Long, politically. But but as far yeah, as a uh, yes, I love. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Huey Long, you, 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 you read my, you read, read some of my books. I talk about him a lot, but uh, uh, you know. know. And they assassinated him, didn't they? Absolutely, they certainly yeah. did. And it was a they. It was a they. But um, yeah. you know, Orwell's one of those, kind, and that's why yeah. your website is. is yeah, your website is so important because Orwell. Really, you can take almost everything he wrote, and it's always profound. Almost everything. It's just like wow. I mean, just it makes you think. Every you know, every statement that you read by him is you know incredible. 
And uh, you've you've managed it. You have snippets of that. You have excerpts from 1984 and everything all over the website. So uh, just fantastic work. It's a very valuable web website. Tell, so tell the readers how they can find it. Any, any other thing you want to promote or whatever, tell the listeners, because uh, uh, this has been fascinating, but I'm sure people might want to check your website out and learn more about it. Well, they go to www.orwelltoday.com. And uh, there's, it, there's 20 years of essays in the commentary and essays section there's major sections on JFK truth and untruth, the JFK assassination puzzle, the RFK assassination puzzle, uh, staged events. You know, we've talked about some of those, like 9/11 and the Oklahoma bombing, and all the, you know, the school killings, and and the consp- and then there's conspiracy theories, and then I talk about Orwell's other books and his writings, and uh, you know, Unbrave New World, Gulliver's Travels and Truth. Uh, places and, and things that um, I've done that share Orwell, the pilgrimages to Orwell, homage to Orwell. Um, yeah, it's uh, whenever I read a book about him, like, or, or then I'll scan a couple of pages and show people what he says because I know everybody's not going to buy all the books or know all the books or have all the time. So mm-hmm. I just share everything I do learn about him or read that what he wants us to know. I put it up there. I'm so eternally grateful for the World Wide Web. I mean, this is this is um, magic that we have it. And, no, uh, it is. And it's, it's, it hasn't been outlawed yet, but uh, it's, but uh, it, it's uh, you know keep on doing what you're doing. You, it's fantastic work, and it's a very important website. Again, OrwellToday.com. Go check it out, Jackie Jura. Thanks so much for joining us. This was a real pleasure. We'll have to talk again. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be right back after these words. Thank you very much. listening to the Donald Jeffries show. In a time of fake news, fake politicians and fake fiat currency, it's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Hi, this is Ron Paul. You're listening to The Donald Jeffries Show. Wall Street Gold. Silver. The stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. 
WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Support Chuck O'Chelly at Chili.com. There's no money in it, so yeah, that is that's the, the problem. That's the biggest problem, I think. And uh, you know, some people would say that look, you're in an age when you can be independently supported, but uh, quite frankly, I, I, I'm on that business model too. And uh, look, I'm not going to complain, but uh, but I'm going to complain, <laughs> okay? Because people want to support you, they love you to death, but uh, honestly, so if you're listening in, this yeah. is a very unsubtle request to support the damn show, and I want you to do this too because. Um, you know, uh, the Achille Report is one of the few places where Greg Palace can get his his uh, the, the stuff out. I mean, you'll still see my bylaws in some of these outlets, but nevertheless, um, I used to be a regular on CNN and on MSDNC, uh, but uh, no more. Revelation through conversation. Ochilly.com. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. Hi there, this is John Barber, and you're listening to the most informed man in America, my friend, fellow author, and raconteur, the great Donald Jeffries Show. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right, well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now, has it? Real Eckert on the JFK assassination. Look into her claims. Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Mary Baker, in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Revelation through conversation. Ochilly.com. You are listening to The Donald Jeffries Show. to the Donald Jeffrey Show. I hope you guys enjoyed Jackie Jura and all things Orwell. Now we're opening up the phone lines now. So the number to call is 
519-527-5016. That's 319-527-5016. See a lot of people in the chat room. Sorry, OR busy. Particularly happy to see somebody from the UK. Uh, so thanks for listening in. I know it's late over there. So appreciate that. Um I mean, it's certainly, you know, t- talking to someone about Orwell now is uh, more relevant than ever, obviously. It was, you know, we don't get very much good news, but that, that was a little bit of good news, I think, that uh, that uh, Nina Janowitz, I guess, the, you know, the uh, the singing Mary Poppins, whatever you call her. I don't even know what you would call her, but she's like an Instagram chick, but she's got power. She did have power, but uh, she resigned, and I guess they decided not to do that Orwellian Govern go, dis, disinformation governance board or whatever it was very Orwellian term and Orwellian concept so that's good news but they're still working on the domestic terrorists bill in Congress and again these are just uh, I just hate that these names are just so disturbing and I don't know why we insist on framing it that way because every time we call somebody a white supremacist or a racist or you know much as we used to, when you used to call them a communist or a pinko or whatever. It's uh, you're you're basically saying you can't believe that, you know you can't because because let's face it you know if you're a free speech purist as I am, you have the, even something like disinformation you know or misinformation well let, let's just even say that whatever we're saying is is we're misinformed, we have the right to be misinformed. Now you you if, especially if we have a public platform you can call us out and say. Uh, okay, I'm going to show you you're misinformed and correct us. Okay, that's fine. But they, they never do that. They just call it misinformation. And in, in, in this day and age, they claim, you know, it's, just, it's Russian disinformation or Putin is, is – it's, it's, that's no way to, to, to debate. Tell us why. Okay, why it's wrong. Like if somebody, you know, those of us that, you know, have talked like Chuck and I and people, many, many of the people that uh, have studied the JFK assassination for a long time. If somebody says, Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy, well, we – we can call that obvious what it is, complete misinformation, complete disinformation, but we can go right to why. We can say this is why it's missing. You know, uh, but most of the time when they're saying it's basically you're saying have, you know, you're, it's medical and misinformation. OK, well, tell us tell us why it's medical information. Explain how the vaccine has killed more people. You tell us not a conspiracy theory. You admit, and we know you're really fudging the figures and making them look anywhere, nowhere near as bad as they probably are, but you have told, admitted that, that this vaccine has killed more people than all the other vaccines in history combined. So that's not misinformation to point that out. It's not misinformation to talk about you know things like my brother, personal experience, people like that that happened, that, that this is happening. I, I heard from a woman uh, – this week that had a very similar experience last year uh, with her son, even more tragically, uh, died almost the exact same way as my brother did. So it, it says when you, what are you doing when you call that medical misinformation? First of all, you're disrespecting uh, what happened to us and our loved ones. And uh, you're, again, you're, you're making it so that you're criminalizing opinion. And that's, that's the essence of thought crime. And that's what all this is about. So that's why I cringe when I, I, was the first one, I think, back then, you know, they say, you know, what are you talking about hate speech or hate crime? That's ridiculous. You can't put an emotion on that. That's absurd. That's like, could there be, is there such a thing as a love crime? I don't know. Is there? I mean, you know, you might as well. I mean, it's, if there's a hate crime, why couldn't there be a love crime? I mean, it's absolute nonsense or, you know, love speech or something. Uh, you can't do that. Uh 
And I see Bob Wilson's in the chat room. Of course, Chris Graves is there. Two of the three searchers. Now, Peter Seacoss can just show up. We'll have all three searchers in the chat room. And that's that's exciting for everyone. So you can't, how many shows can you come on and you get you get the three searchers or some of the three searchers in the chat room? But um, so, and then we have the, uh, I've commenting a little bit on this too. It's, it's just the madness that continues. You have these UFO hearings in Congress, first time since the 1960s. And I've been talking as, you know, somebody who back in the day, you know, when I was a wayward youth, uh, my, the second favorite subject of mine to be, and I was, you know, the days before the internet, I was reading books constantly. I mean, you know, there's, if you saw me back then, I mean, I always brought a book to work. Even when I was, even when I was working, you know, a hard physical labor job, which I did quite a bit, uh, I would always bring uh, the, uh, oh, thank you, Chuck, UAP. Now, that's right. That's right. I forgot. They're not UFOs anymore. They're, it was an unidentified aerial phenomenon. Okay, UAP. I don't know. <laughs> call me. I'm going old school with the UFOs. They do speak correct now, right? But, uh, you know, for decades, these, I mean, I read, I just, I knew a lot about that subject. You know, I, I kind of stopped being interested in it about the time the Whitley Strieber type and the grays and the uh, the people being abducted in their sleep or, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, for me, it was, that was a part of the pun, but a gray area. I, I don't know. I couldn't, it didn't, you know, I, I liked the, uh, I have a book called The Humanoids that I read a lot about, you know, encounters where I, I was most interested in, in encounters where they uh, they didn't just see the lights, where it landed. And because that's a lot more complex and it's, it's harder to imagine. You know, you can't attribute that to the planet Venus is just what or swamp gas, which uh, Gerald Ford once uh, when he was a Michigan congressman. He uh, he helped perpetuate the ball. Oh, you just saw swamp gas over there. <laughs> um, so. You know, for for this, reading the, all those books, understanding it, being well versed in the subject matter, almost as much as I was in the JFK assassination, uh, I I look at what's happening now, and I realize, well, you know, these people were they were you know ridiculed and scorned for decades. Anybody that saw a UFO, and if you know what happened to these people, you study the history. Virtually all of them, almost none of them. I mean, maybe you could say Benny and Barney Hill, maybe kind of, but they weren't really celebrities. And I don't, I don't, I, I'm sure they caught a lot of heck. First of all, they were an interracial couple back when you hardly ever saw any. So they probably were already, you know, catching some negative attention. Um, but the, you know, these people were, oftentimes they had physical injuries, burns and strange things from these imaginary craft. Uh, their spouses often left them, their marriages broke up, their families didn't support them. And um, so they were, and I, I remember one of the reasons I, I'm sorry, I, I don't revere the memory of Dr. Carl Sagan, because uh, you know, this is a guy who had billions and billions, and but he ridiculed anyone who saw UFOs. And he used to go on Johnny Carson, and we all know what Johnny Carson did with Jim Garrison. So Johnny Carson obeyed all rules when it came to subjects like this. And Carson was a, a big astronomy fan, as I was, and, and uh, he would uh, get on there with Sagan, and they would just ridicule. They would always manage to find something in there to make fun of Brazilian farmers that had seen UFOs or whatever. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't revere his memory. I'm sorry because of that, because he helped perpetuate what I think was a giant cover-up of what I don't think is alien technology. Uh, I, I lost uh, that belief a long time ago. 
after reading the works of John Keel, who wrote the Mothman Prophecies, but he wrote more important books like uh, The Eighth Tower and Strange Creatures from Time and Space, Our Haunted Planet. And he was the first one who postulated that uh, UFOs were, were not alien craft, but they were either some kind of uh, uh, an intelligence project or a military project, which I think they probably are, or some kind of interdimensional craft. He even thought about maybe they're time travelers or something. I think all those make more sense. But regardless, these things were the thousands and thousands, but not millions of people who, who's, who reported seeing these things for decades all over the world. They, were, they weren't believed. They were ridiculed. And uh, the media made fun of them. Politicians made fun of them. Now, suddenly, within the last couple of years, the New York Times puts out a front page article about it. And that's uh, renamed UAPs instead of UFOs. And it suddenly has newfound respectability. Congress is, uh, you know, looking into it. And I'm sorry, you can't help. You know, I'm sure almost everybody listening to this show knows what Project Bluebeam is. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have been talking about the fake alien invasion for a long time. Are they planning that? Is this the next thing? I don't know. But, you know, Project Bluebeam, if you read up about it, it's not just a fake alien invasion. There's there's more that they it could possibly be. I don't think they would do this. But another aspect of it is a fake second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, for those of you who know about the past of the CIA, the CIA seriously considered staging a mock second coming of Christ uh, back in the early 60s during the Cuba days. And uh, they wanted to they wanted to uh, shine a holographic image of Jesus in the sky uh, over Cuba because, you know, Cuba is very Catholic. And uh, they somehow thought that would uh, get them to. Uh, run to the, you know, to run into the arms of the CIA, I guess, or whatever. But they didn't do that. It was one of many projects that they aborted. But uh, later that became incorporated into uh, maybe something that might happen in a Project Blue Beam. I don't see them doing that now. But the, the thing is, they're, they're really crappy, obviously, at these hoaxes. So if they had a, a staged alien invasion, I, I, I don't have much confidence that they'd be able to make it look, you know, even halfway realistic. I don't think it would look as... Uh, as, as good as Mars attacks or Independence Day. You know, I, I, I just don't think that they, uh, they could do that. Oh, Chris has been to Barney, Betty and Barney Hills Graves in New Hampshire. That's what I suppose. And he's also the spot where they have died. Chris, Chris knows everything, I swear. It's amazing. I, I'm the luckiest you know, guy in the world to have these kinds of researchers because Chris is just a walking encyclopedia. Amazing. Uh, but uh, so, you know, all those names were, were, were very... Uh, familiar to me. And so I, I'm just kind of watching in disbelief now, because of course I don't trust, obviously I don't trust Congress. I don't trust the media. So if they're suddenly telling me they're looking at all these videos that, you know, I, I saw videos for, you know, the military people, military pilots, professional you know, civilian pilots uh, describe seeing these things and photographing them and filming them on video for many, many, many years ago. And those videos, those pictures are just as impressive as uh, the ones you're seeing now that they're suddenly concerned. They've been talking about, yeah, I don't know what they're calling them now, but uh, we used to call them, um, I guess, USOs, you know, underwater s swimming objects or whatever. It was. But these, there's uh, lots of people that, that also saw the same kind of craft going in and out of the oceans. And uh, they've even mentioned that now as well, too. So it'll be interesting to see. What the hell, uh, you know, what what exactly they have cooked up here? Again, that number is 
5016. And we, uh, I certainly love hearing from you guys. And uh, if you've been listening to me, I've been busy. Uh, last couple weeks, I, I was on David Knight twice. Uh, my other producer, Tony Artebrown, my other show, I protest, uh, fills in there a lot. So I was on there a couple times. And obviously, my I protest show, we had a uh, uh, kind of a really, we really outrageously went down the, uh, the rabbit hole last Friday where we had a flat earth guy on there. Uh, very interesting stuff. So, you know, I, I, my mind's open to anything. So I'll have, uh, if you can find somebody that's, uh, I have a book about the hollow earth that I read years ago. I, I'm very interested in that too. Nobody's talking about that much anymore, but I, I love those kinds of things. And I let uh, everybody have their say. One thing I know is we're being lied to about everything. So I don't necessarily trust, uh, you know, anything that we're being told. So, so basically, we have th- those are, I guess, the big things that are happening. What else is happening? I, uh, I was looking at the. I don't know why I was like I was rooting for that uh, black woman in Pennsylvania, uh, Catherine. Oh God, I already forgot. I just wrote was writing an article about her. I've already forgotten her name, Catherine something. But uh, she, uh, she embodies everything that the America First movement, the MAGA movement, is supposed to you know to represent. And not only that, but she's a she's a refreshing poster child for that movement because she's a black woman, and uh, you know it, it kind of uh, minimizes the uh, the the catcalls of racism and white supremacy around Trump. So she should have been an ideal candidate for Trump to rally around. But now, now Trump Trump had no, wanted nothing to do with her because she's actually mouthing the rhetoric that he did during his 2016 campaign. Instead, he goes for Dr. Oz, this uh, absurd you know, TV star. Oh, I got two callers. Okay, go ahead. Let's take the first caller. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you? <laughs> and who is this? A Massachusetts accent, no less. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll, I go by uh, Mr. G. <laughs> Mr. Mr. G, what's up, Mr. G? Well, I want to tell you, I've been to Snowflake, Arizona. I went to see Mr. William Cooper's grave, but before that, I went to see Travis Walton's hometown, Snowflake. Yes, and Travis Walton. That's near the White Mountains, where the movie Fire in the Sky took place, which is also funny because the Betty and Barney Hill site, where they were abducted, supposedly, was mm-hmm. also known as the White Mountains in, in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird. Travis Travis is still around, isn't he? He was pretty young when that happened, right? Yeah, I tried to I tried to get you two together. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. Yeah, I remember that. But uh, that's, that, yeah, that's uh, he was the one that basically claimed. I guess he was hit by a light from the craft in the woods. Wasn't he with a bunch of loggers or something? Is it was it like part of a logging project or something? Yeah, no, they they did a bunch of uh, different. Um, I don't know what you would call forensics type stuff back in the day, but uh, he definitely had some radiation poison or something. And uh, the grass yeah, yeah. around uh, where his body fell actually had some some signs of uh, radiation too. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean his story is weird, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I also tried to get um, Betty and Barney Hill's uh, granddaughter, who's like an MMA star. Tried to get, <laughs> you know, up with her yeah, that too. would be it. That would be interesting. And Betty and Barney Hill's granddaughters at <laughs> MMA. I could make yeah, that. Yeah, no kid, no, no joke. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's 
<laughs> and well, they have been... they have a they have a weird distinction too because they were um like a, a mixed race couple back in yes. the sixties. So they yes. Yes. they had to go through a lot of stuff too. So I don't yeah. know if that helps their story their credibility more because they had a lot more to lose by coming forward, so well, the alien, the the aliens were ahead of their time. They were they were scouring Earth for one of the few interracial couples <laughs> at the time. Well, they, were, they were woke, but they were trying <laughs> to make people awake. They, you all got lost in the translation, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. Well, Chris, you know, I appreciate. Well, anyway, you got another the caller, so I don't want to clog up the clog up the wine. So oh, you're the man. James, hopefully. Okay. okay, all right. Thanks, Chris. It's James. <laughs> all right, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, thanks for all you do. Bye. <laughs> all right, we have, we have another caller on the line. Caller? Hey, Donald. Hi, is this... Donald. Is, yes, yes, sir. Hi, this is Felix. Felix, oh, man, another another fantastic supporter. I really appreciate you, Felix. Felix Caraballo, how you doing? Good. Uh, my quick uh, UFO story mm-hmm. was <clears throat> on the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash. I took a road trip to Roswell, New Mexico, uh, July 4th week in 1997. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I found most interesting is, is that it seems the only people that were interested in UFOs, the Roswell crash, or aliens, were only the people that visited the town that time. Uh, Mm -hmm. The local townspeople, anyone I met that lived there that I tried to engage in conversation, uh, had no interest in it. And so Mm -hmm. I found that to be interesting. That is well, you know, I, I had I had a whole section on Roswell and uh, Area Fifty One and stuff that I took out of Crimes and Cover Ups. Uh, I decided just didn't go with the rest of the book, but um, I will probably because I've, I've thought for a long time about writing a book about all the unexplained phenomena, UFOs, and all the other forte and stuff that I'm really interested in. So that may appear in there down the road. So I'm I'm well versed in all this stuff. I mean, what do you? I mean, obviously something happened in. Roswell, you had Matt Brazelton that uh, discovered this stuff on his property, and uh, he talked about it was a, a substance that he'd never seen before, where you could crinkle it up and it immediately went back out with no, you know, no lines in it, whatever. And he uh, showed it to his young son and his neighbor, and uh, but they tried to say no, it was a weather balloon. What, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think something did happen in Roswell. Something. Uh, Something crashed there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence, like uh, the first report put out by the U.S. Air Force Base uh, was the recovery of a mm-hmm. UFO craft um, and bodies, and then that General Ramey came in. Yes. And stomped everybody, and uh, the story went silent. And uh, then back in the 80s, there was a, I can't think of his name, but an author researcher uh, did an investigation and opened that thing wide open. It was uh, Stan Friedman. 
Yeah, established at Stanford even, yep. Yeah. Um, but the only other thing I want to say is when I visited Roswell, uh, I hung hung out in downtown Roswell for a couple of days. And let me tell you, it was like going back in time. Uh, hmm. It didn't seem like uh, the town had changed at all since the the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything looked, you know, 40s, 50s style. Maybe it's maybe it's part of a time warp or something. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's in some kind of a time slip or something. No, but I, I think that uh, something did happen there. Yes. Uh, what nobody talks about. Maybe you could do some research on it in the future. Is uh, there was a second UFO crash uh, near the town of Corona? Nobody mm-hmm. talks about it. Is that well? There was one that happened the, in. Uh, there was one that happened even earlier. I think it was Aurora, Texas, and that was early. Oh either, yeah, yeah, yeah. Late eighteen hundred, nineteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, yeah, that really thing cool. crashed. Yeah. Yeah, that thing crashed. Uh, there was one. Uh, dead body mm-hmm. and uh, the townspeople buried it with like the respect of a human being mm-hmm. but they covered it up so nobody could find out where uh, the being was buried yeah. yeah you had you had this and you had you had an incident too unsolved unsolved mysteries used to have do some really good work it's one of the best shows it's you know been on I I, I really miss it but Early 90s, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s, they uh, <clears throat> talked about a, a same type of thing where something crashed in Pennsylvania in the 60s. And they talked about the cover up, the people there were saw, you know, like covered wagons, you know, maybe covering bodies or something. And, and how the and the whole area was quarantined off limits. And uh, so these things obviously happened here or there. But the question is, what are they? I don't think they're alien craft, but I, I don't doubt for a second they're real. But uh, I think there's some kind of uh, top secret government craft or, you know, maybe maybe there's some kind of weird time thing going on. Or like John Keel said, maybe they're maybe they're certain he he thought that a lot of these things like like Bigfoot and all that, that he thought that they were uh, maybe part of some kind of almost a cosmic practical jokers where these things were slipping in and out of dimensions. I don't know. Uh, I did send you some quotes from Ben Rich of Skunkwork. Yes, yes. Uh, it's outstanding for him to say things like that, you know? Yeah, he, now he's around. Uh, this is Ben Rich is, is doing work now, so I, I could conceivably talk to him. Oh, no, he, he died a while ago. Oh, but he okay. did do some presentations when he retired mm-hmm. from Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. And he made he was alleged to make some w- really wild statements, like uh, we have the technology to take ET home. Right, right. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. What kind well, of technology? Why would he say something like that? Yeah, that's there's a and lot of people. Quote I came across another qu- quote that I came across was when he he was to have said. Uh, they have theirs, and we have ours. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Stating that they have their flying craft, and we have our own. 
Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot we don't know. Absolutely, there's. I, I think that uh, we we are, as John Keel John Keel called it, our haunted planet. Another one of his books had that title, and uh, I think that in many ways it is because there's a lot of people all over the world that have seen some unexplainable things and uh, science, which again I don't what trust. What about that giant? What about that giant triangle that thousands of people in Arizona saw? How can you discount that? Well, yeah, and that's the, and that's the things where you and you've had those kinds of things where mass sightings, where you know they, they would say, "Oh, mass hallucination." No, I don't think so. When you have that many people seeing the same thing, you go back to Our Lady of Fatima in Portugal. I mean, how many? I don't know how many thousands of people saw that, saw something. And Chuck's talking about lights over Mexico City. Absolutely, yeah, one of the biggest mass sightings ever in Mexico City in the '60s, I think. But uh, there's so they had all they've had these things happen repeatedly but that's why my point about what's going on now is that every time those things happen science and the media still scoffed at the thousands of people that saw them and still said no no that didn't happen that's impossible you're crazy now suddenly why why do you think felix why do you think suddenly congress is holding hearings about ufos or uaps as they call it now and uh why are they suddenly giving them credibility well i think it goes back to uh uh the the head of uh, NASA uh von Werner Werner von Braun uh, yeah. allegedly just yeah Werner Braun von Braun he, he told a woman that the last trick that they're going to pull on the people is to stage an alien invasion yeah and that was like days before he died Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 what I that's what I you know have, have talked about. It's Project Blue Beam, and you know that's that's scary stuff because I I, I don't I don't think they're they're not very good at anything, but uh, you know to 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 stage something like that on that level, I I don't think they're confident enough to do that. But how many people? Would, I suspect the same people that are double masking and social distancing would would fall for that too. I don't think there's anything it wouldn't fall for. Well, they say that over 4 billion people have taken the vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, Four, that's, yeah. that's what, 50%. So you're going to have at least 50% of the people are going to buy into it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think Whatever it's good, it is. Yeah. And, they, and if they'll, they'll make it, if they did it, they'd have to make it look like I mean, maybe they have a capability of using CGI on that level. I don't know, especially if they're if they're just televising it, because then they could just use their CGI GCI stuff. And uh, yeah, you people people would buy because they trust anything. They say if they, you know if they can buy some of the stuff they bought in the last couple of years. I mean, if you've got them getting vaccinated multiple times for the same disease, and you know even when they're getting like Stephen Colbert still getting it and still saying I'm thankful for my vaccine, it's like. You know, what are you thankful for? It didn't work. It's, uh, you know, what can you say? Yeah, and he could have been injured by it, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, and Chris has said, okay, I think it's Chris, the, the, the Aurora, Aurora, Texas, 1898, and they buried the, absolutely buried the pilot. But that's, that's one of those things that the, the, you know, like the explosion in Tunguska, you know, in the, was it Siberia back in uh, early 1900s as well? Some people think that was in some kind of a nuclear weapon, something happened there other people think you know maybe 
some kind of big asteroid hit or something. But uh, there's there's a lot of these things that happened and uh, were not reported adequately because our media doesn't report anything, honestly. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, Don. Thank you, Felix. What you do. Well, th- I appreciate your support. Thanks, for, thanks very much, Felix. All right. Take care. You too. So yeah, it's very so very soon we kind of got into these uh, <clears throat> into this topic of strength. But this this was again really yeah, if you'd known Don Jeffries back in the seventies and uh, pretty much the UFO days were the seventies. By the time nineteen eighty uh, rolled around or so, I had already kind of changed a bit. But uh, I, I was really into uh, the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle was really big in the seventies. Charles Burlitz wrote a a book called The Bermuda Triangle that was, uh, you know, like the number one best-selling book, I think, in the country. And um, certainly, if he'd done that in these times, uh, you know, podcasts like ours would have been competing to get people like him on the show. And um, you had John Kill, you had Jacques Vallée, who's still around. I tried to contact Vallée. He's still around, and he's the one that they used his research for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie which I, I never really liked. I, I don't think that, I, I don't think they good, did a good job of, uh, I don't think Spielberg did a good job on that. Uh, of course, I've never been a huge fan of Richard Dreyfuss either, but I, I just didn't think uh, that represented, you know, the Close Encounters thing as well as it could have. But, uh, so that was, that was a huge uh, area of interest for me. And it's still, you know, there's still obviously something there. It's not all politics. And with the political world just becoming so, so hopeless, if you, if you, if you guys get a chance, uh, you know, check out my Substack, DonaldJeffries.media. That's going to be my website soon, DonaldJeffries.media. It's still work. That part is still being worked on. But right now, you go to DonaldJeffries.media and you'll see all my Substack articles. And I write a couple times a week. I have a pay option there, and some people have paid, but I offer everything for free. So you get the same content either way. But if you want to help, then that's great. <clears throat> if not, you still get to read everything. But I wrote uh, something about Meet John Doe, which is you know one of my second favorite film of all time, had It's Wonderful Life. I love Frank Capra films. And I talked about, you know, trying to start these John Doe chapters. So uh, I, I titled it John Doe, the, John Doe's of the World Unite. And uh, you get a chance to, to read it. Please do so because uh, I, I don't know what the chances are of us ever coming together to try to stop this tyranny. But I, I just – you know, I, I feel more hopeless in terms of politics every day. And I don't I don't even know why I continue to follow. Like I said, I was checking at that uh, <clears throat> the black woman, Catherine, I've already forgot her last name, who was running in Pennsylvania's Republican and was really sounding great. You know, I was saying right on to everything. And she she attacked the other two candidates, Dr. Oz, who ridiculous Trump endorsed. And this guy named McCormack, who's also associated with the World Economic Forum and is a hedge fund manager, you know, incredibly wealthy. So you know, she's the underdog there. She should, but again, what you got two choices: either, either they're not counting the votes, which I don't think they are. But even worse would be is if they are counting the votes, and they're they're looking at these three figures. Let's say in this particular case, they're looking at these three characters. One of them is Dr. Oz, who was just a laughable. You know, well, Trump was a reality TV star too, so he's kind of like Trump. Really, he's just a celebrity. How can anyone take him seriously? He's he's Mr. Vaccine. He's he's never espoused any Trump type rhetoric. This is a guy who used to uh, very accurately. He used to say some good things. He used to talk about the importance of organic foods and talk about the dangers of preservatives and all the crap that's in our foods. He's completely changed now. 
now you know he's oh you know it's the organic foods are no better than others and he tried to make it an economic issue that all the rich people can afford organic foods and um you know so it's 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 not the he, he definitely hasn't kept his word but of course trump comes and endorses him sky mccormick maybe even worse but you have the underdog here the black woman who is uh talking about uh calling out the vaccines and the covid pandemic and uh talking about how uh you know, haven't worked and, and calling out the other two for being associated with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Force for, uh, Forum, which, of course, you know, anybody associated with that presumably, you know, uh, believes in the, you know, you'll, you'll have nothing and be happy with it. You'll own nothing and be happy with it. It's apparently the credo. Chuck asks, have I ever read weird, I don't know if he's asking me, weird New Jersey magazine? Um uh, you, Chuck, you must know the Jersey Devil. I mean, there's the Jersey Devil is one of those characters that uh, was like a, uh, seen by many, many, many people. Um, I don't know how many times, it, how many instances there were. Again, I need to to bone up on my forte and phenomena, but I think there were at least a couple occurrences, uh, you know, years and years apart, where people saw the character that they called the Jersey Devil, and it's like a like the, like a Bigfoot. Like a Loch Ness monster, cryptoids, you know. That um, oh, he had Chris chats with Lauren Coleman. I'm very yeah, I know I know Lauren Lauren Coleman's a Fortean guy. Chris, the the Jersey Devil phenomena, Don, stretches well over 100 years of separate yes, sightings yes. and uh, right. and all that. Again, being from Jersey, believe it or not, there was actually a textbook in third grade on the Jersey Devil. Uh, which uh, talked about the legend, the reality of the legend versus, you know, what it became, the different sightings, uh, illustrations, people had uh, sketch artists, and the sightings up to that point when I was in school in the 1980s, in the textbook, it said that the sightings had gone all the way up to the 1970s. So, uh, it's one of those cryptozoological things that is mainly a Pinelands which is uh, more or less in the southern part of the state, phenomena. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, it, 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 provi- it continues. The, but there's a whole thing. The reason why I asked about Weird New Jersey, I actually meant that for Chris, was okay. because the state is loaded with all kinds of strange phenomena, including UFO stuff. And uh, there's uh, one of my favorite ones, which I've actually seen, is uh, they call it the Ghost of Exit 82, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is this odd sort of figure that a lot of people, some people have had accidents and everything else. Somebody seems to run across the road, and it's a vaporous figure uh, on the ramp coming off of Exit 82, which uh, I think goes to Tom's River or that area in general. So um, a lot of weird stuff goes on in Jersey. <laughs> Just so <laughs> well, this is there's a lot of weird stuff there. Ch- Ch- uh, Chris says, "Didn't Jacques Vallée pass away?" I don't think so. Last time I looked, Jacques Vallée was still alive. He's probably eighty-ish, maybe. I don't know, but I could be wrong. You know, so so many people have died. You know, he, he probably wouldn't exactly make the front pages if he did. But uh, you think? And, and Chris comes from the super spooky Bridgewater Triangle. I think Chris, I had. That guy on one of the early I protest shows, I had uh, the guy who produced a documentary about the Bridgewater Triangle, and I can't, I'm sure Chris remembers. It. Chris was probably the one that suggested, I imagine, I guess, because he's one of his uh, interests. But yeah, the, the Bermuda Triangle was huge back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Well, there's even some strange phenomena and and stuff connected to uh, uh, history's in- interesting uh, events and things like this. Not just you know Woodrow Wilson and that and that whole uh, era, but um, indeed, uh, look, uh, Lakehurst Naval Base is in New Jersey. That's where the Hindenburg crashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, there's a certain area not too far from it where a lot of sightings occur in the sky. So, and there's a weird sort of connection where there's these four military bases for no apparent reason, really, um, in this one section of Jersey. It makes no sense <laughs> as to why well, they're well, there. Well, where, yeah. where where did the band Foo Fighters get their name from? I mean, you know, that's that's from the you know the Japanese sightings of UFOs in World War Two. That's where they got the name from. So, it's uh, this stuff yeah. has been going on for you know a long time, and uh, there's. There, I think they just it's it's easy to that's why I'm I'm so skeptical about that. What do you think what why do you think Chuck that they're suddenly taking the UFO thing seriously? Cuz they they this is this is to me this is almost like they suddenly decided to say, "Well, of course leaving Harvey Oswald didn't do it." And acted like they'd always said that cuz that's what they're basically doing with UFOs. Well, eventually they could claim that because remember uh we we have the House Select Committee that states a completely separate uh, conclusion from the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald's still involved, but it was very likely a conspiracy. So that's an official right. declaration. There's two separate declarations on the books there. And right. even despite the fact that we had, what, 40 something hearings and uh, committees related to Pearl Harbor, uh, the U.S. government never contradicted itself like that before. So eventually somebody could say, yeah, of course, we always knew it was a conspiracy. Look at the House Select Committee. What about the Warren Commission? Pay no attention to that. House Select Committee. Um, You know, there's always a purpose for these things. And the fact that it's so eerily bipartisan is the thing that cracked me up watching those hearings. Where it's like, hey, we can all agree this is interesting. Even Adam Schiff with that very weird sort of wide-eyed look. Uh, uh, that he has on TV. <laughs> yes. He disturbs me. Certain people disturb me by their body mechanics, and he's one of them. Uh, you know, and it's like, well, we're all bipartisan on this? Yeah, <laughs> that right there makes me go, uh, at least that's a pink flag, if not a red one. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and and, and that's that's the fear, and I think that people think that, uh, you know, we have to, much as you saw in the movie, I guess it was more Independence Day, where it was Earthlings, Earth first, you know, <laughs> where we we have to band together to fight the to fight this common enemy. But of course, that kind of goes against the division they're promoting too. So I I don't know. I never know what the hell they're going to do. But there's 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 some kind of reason why they're suddenly treating this subject so differently than they have all my life. I mean, you know, that was it wasn't a subject. I mean, I remember. Maybe a little. More, it was a little easier to talk about it at parties than the JFK assassination, maybe. But uh, it still wasn't something you could you couldn't really talk about UFOs to anyone back then, even when they're just you know because most people, oh yeah, they kind of roll their eyes. But now I guess it's uh, well. See, you, it's UFOs a topic for discussion. Yeah, UFOs gives you the luxury of falling back to well, it's just interesting. I'm not really serious about it. You know, right, like right. in other words, it, it doesn't attack anybody's particular political view. Or, what are you saying about America, boy? Uh, you, you know, yes. you, you, you don't have that problem with UFOs. UFOs could just be, well, I'm just having fun with it. I mean, it's interesting. And mm-hmm. there you go. Uh, it, it's it's not as offensive. People don't personalize it the same way. I mean, I guess people that claim they were abducted might personalize it. But, uh, <laughs> but people, <laughs> the majority of people you run into 
are not going to say that they were abducted. And they might indeed just have a viewpoint on it because it's permeated the culture. And that's it. It's not one of these things that makes you a certain kind of person, you know, unless, wait a minute, the CIA used to say, you believe in little green men? Unless it's that, (laughs) right? If you kind of leave it open-ended, it doesn't cause judgment to automatically fall on you. So that's why I think this is most interesting, that that's the bipartisan issue of the moment. But anyway, yeah. I'll shut up now, Don, because you only got a few minutes left. And no, no problem. Thanks. Always, always welcome uh, your input. But yeah, you know, uh, and and Chris mentions Fall River. Uh, Chris has you know Fall River, and that's another subject. I, I read lots of uh, not lots of books, but I read a few books and read a lot of articles on um, Lizzie Borden, and that's Fall River, obviously. So uh, a lot of theories on that. I you know I don't know what you think about that, Chris, but I tend to think that. Uh, her sister may have been the murderer, you know, there, and there's a book that uh, I can't remember the name of it was that, that postulated that. And uh, one of my Facebook friends uh, starred uh, in a, a one woman show for years, uh, starred as uh, Lizzie Borden. And I tried to get her to talk about it, but I mean, she didn't really talk much about it. <clears throat> but uh, so I'm not sure what they postulated there, but uh, interesting to say the least, because they were, you know, upper, upper class people. And it's uh it's kind of one of those uh, murder mysteries that everybody has a different uh, suspect, and you know, you know, you know who to, to believe there. But uh, but that's Fall River. When I hear Fall River, that's what I think of there. But uh, so that's uh, I, I don't I haven't heard any added more updates on I, the last I heard in the Pennsylvania is that Doctor Oz and uh, McCormick were too close to call or something, and so. Uh, and the poor Catherine, you know, is down, is, is back in third place. So I'm not sure what they're going. Yeah, Chris says yes. He said the Bridge Motor Triangle show with filmmaker. Steve Zabraka. Yeah, Zabraka, Zabraki, I always pronounce it wrong. Bridgewater UFO show for Opperman. It was meant for you, but you're And, you know, I don't know if I want to talk to Zabraka yet uh, because um, that guy disappoints me because he was uh, – it was so refreshing to hear from a local media reporter who covered the the JFK Jr. crash, and he expressed his doubts before to, before he even knew what I thought, and uh, now he's he's kind of backed away from that, from what I can understand, and I don't understand that. And you know, Hidden History Three, and again, great input from Chris and Bob Wilson and Peter Seacoss, they've sent me, the three searchers have sent me so much great uh, research and they sent me so much stuff, it's become two books. So now I've took took a big chunk out of it and that's going to be Hidden History 4, starting Hidden History 4, but Hidden History 3, more from the American memory hole, the tip of the hat to Orwell. That's the uh, subtitle right now. Uh, I'm going to be sending out the publisher soon, so I'm putting it together. But uh, in trying to call these these people, these witnesses, that are associated with these events. And a lot of times, you know, Chris or, or Bob uh, finds these phone numbers for me and, and, and gets them when I can't find them. And, but 95% of the time, I would say at least the phone's numbers are disconnected. And I, I, I think if you looked at the population at large, if whatever number is listed on 411.com or white pages, I don't think 95% of them would be disconnected. I really don't. So I don't think that's an accident. And I, but I mean, people like, you know, there's a 9-11 witness, and I'm not going to mention her in case I get her, but I mean, she was very vocal. She was even launched a lawsuit against Dick Cheney, but her phone number has been busy for two months. I mean, I, I mean, do they just decide after a while they don't want to talk anymore? I don't know. You know, in writing about JFK, I, I was really interested in the Willis girls, uh, Linda and Rosemary Willis. I mean, I, I, I find out something new every day. I 
had never seen the Texas Monthly interview they did in 1998, I think, where they were so they were more vocal and out there about a conspiracy than any of the witnesses in the JFK assassination I'd heard. Uh, you 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 had uh, you had them talking about, and the mother was still alive then too. The, she called it a coup. Uh, they talked about imposters being there, uh, up to six shots. Uh, the Warren Commission lied. They got, I mean, very very no holds barred about. It. I talked to Gary Shaw about it, and he said, "Oh yeah, they're a great family, and they haven't backed up." But uh, but anyhow, their phone numbers don't work now either. So I don't know. Do they not want to talk anymore? I don't know. But that's been the problem is that I can't get a hold of um, these people that I I would like to have updates uh, on it. Uh, Edie Smith, one of the Oklahoma City bombing, I finally got a hold of her and talked to her, but she didn't know that much. She referred me to her mother, who is uh, Karen Sanders, who has uh, written a book about it. And But, you know, she said she signed a contract agreement with somebody. She can't really talk about it. So. Again, I've got a. I, I'd like to have more. And that's why really it's holding me up from sending to the publisher. I'm still hopeful to maybe contact a few more people. But uh, Chris is always asking me, like, hey, you made any progress on the, on, you know, the couple other Oklahoma City people? I just can't get through to them. Their numbers are all disconnected, or they, sometimes you get to leave a message, but uh, they never call you back. You know, I, I don't. I, I could be shocked if any of them ever call me back, but. Um, so anyway, it, it's it's interesting because you you do see that theme that people are still and again why well, ask the question if there are no conspiracies if all of this can be explained nothing no subterfuge is going on here uh, then exactly why would anybody be why would their phones be disconnected why wouldn't they want to talk and when you get through to these people sometimes you get through them no no I don't want to talk it's like okay so why I mean well, there's a fear there and there shouldn't be. And that's the thing, you know, and that that's what I say all the time is that uh, unless are you scared of Lee Harvey Oswald's family? Are you scared of Timothy McVeigh's family? I mean, are you, say, are you scared of the 19 dead hijackers families? I mean, none of it makes any sense. But obviously they're they're scared of something else. I mean, just in the JFK assassination alone, who, you know, all the reported threats that uh, Chris agrees with me. He thinks the sister of Lizzie Borden most likely did. I, that's the that, that's the theory I'm going with. But um, but I'm going to be writing something on the John Dene Ramsey case. I've got these brothers that read my blog and uh, they're sending me all this information. I'm trying to sift through it, but I, I probably will be writing something on Substack about that. Uh, you know, stuff I needed to go into <laughs> some some other kinds of waters. Sabrasia, thank you. Chris says that's how you pronounce it, Steve Sabrasia. In case Steve Sabrasia is listening to the show, I'm trying to pronounce it. I, I doubt that very seriously. But I'll have a whole new updated section on JFK Jr. in Hidden History 3 as well. And uh, still trying to get a hold of Stephen Laguti and uh, people like that. But again, I just can't can't get through to him. And um, that's the problem. Anyhow, so we're just about out of time here. I want to make sure that... Uh, Chuck gets to do his own fine shows. Thanks so much for listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show. We'll see you next week, same time. Thanks. Mm-hmm.